Hello, welcome to our podcast. I'm Josh Way. I'm Dan Hammer. And we look at movies that one or more of us has seen before and discuss how they hold up. How are you doing this week, Dan? I'm doing all right. I'm feeling better than I did this morning. I was feeling just generally weak and lethargic, and there's no okay. reason for it. <laughs> but I listened to a few messages from myself, and I took my time getting ready today, and I laid down for a minute, and then I felt well enough to do my day. All right. How are you doing? I'm okay. Somehow the summer schedule is still busier than the school year schedule, but I'm I'm doing okay. I'm going to make it. Excited to talk about movies in this little oasis of respite we've carved out for ourselves and apparently <laughs> only ourselves and, I'm, and only ourselves yeah how so because nobody listens to our podcast oh. <laughs> <laughs> that oh why well, I, I guess i didn't go to such a sad places okay. you did <laughs> you know dan i was thinking today uh, not today i was thinking this uh the other night coming out of the new feature that i saw this week how i used to message you on my way out of every movie and then I've gotten out of the habit because I'm saving it for the podcast. I know. I've thought the same thing. And I wonder if we should be getting out of that because I miss you. Yeah. You're fun to you message know? with. And obviously, it's great that we're talking. But now we've like kind of limited everything to this airtight little hour. So I guess I'll that doesn't work for me. I, I feel I take some responsibility because I feel after I saw Ma, for some reason, I wanted to save it. Mm. And then I feel like I set a tone. Yeah. I think we'll find that we can exchange our texts and tip our hat. It wasn't like I have to surprise you with what I thought of a movie. Um, right. We'll still have plenty to talk about. Talking in person is different from messaging. So That's a truth. Yeah. Well, Dan, you know what the next question is? What did you see this week? Well, I went to a couple things. So it was it's Pride this weekend. I think it probably was where you were too, right? Yes. Yeah. So on each afternoon, evening of the festival, I made my way to the movie theater. Because I don't like being there at night. Um, not the, at the festival, not the movie theater. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because you want to get out of there before it gets a little gets a little hairy. Okay. Yeah. And so... Make your appearance, register your presence, and then right. retreat. As under Caesar and <laughs> then be on my way. Okay. Yes. And so on Friday, we went to Annabelle Comes Home. Wow. Did you see Annabelle? I did not. I haven't seen any of the Conjureverse movies. What? I have not. I'm not sure how I did, but I got to seeing a bunch of them more recently. And I think I might be up to date. And I think perhaps I've seen everything in the, wow. in the franchise. Including the little offshoots like The Nun and... Exactly. Wow. Yeah. I have yeah, the I would, first I would... Conjuring on Blu-ray because it was like three bucks in a bin somewhere. And I figured I'd check it out, but I have not watched it yet. Oh, you should. Um, It's hard for me to qualify... Annabelle comes home. It's just more more Annabelle mayhem. Yeah, I like uh, Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga in their roles, and they were sort of present here as a as a bookend at the beginning and end of the movie. But it's you know, mom and dad are going away for the night, mm -hmm. and this young daughter they have named Judy kind of has more awareness than she maybe should for a, a young woman her age about what her parents do. Um, do you know anything about this universe? A little bit. I know that they collect artifacts. I know there's an evil doll. I know that there's a girl who sees dead people. Yeah, so they have a lot of control over the evil that dwells in their house. Mm -hmm. And so Annabelle is so evil that she has to be locked in a sacred case. In Chapel and you just Glass. Never... I heard that, right? <laughs> yeah. 
you just never you never open the case right. no matter what and it doesn't matter what kind of a sign they leave no one no one bothers to pay any attention so the babysitter is there and then the friend of the babysitter comes over and the friend of the babysitter has recently lost her father in a car accident where she was driving and she blames herself and so she thinks that she's going to be able to find an artifact going to be able to sneak into the artifact room and find some way to summon the spirit of her father to get some closure. But that's not the sort of room that this is. It's entirely malevolent and evil and you just never should go down there. But she does. And she unleashes Annabelle and all of these other spirits that um, are hassled whenever Annabelle is free. Mm -hmm. So it isn't the doll itself and it's not like demons possess the doll but something about that doll makes spirits go crazy, I guess. And so there's a lot of good suspense and you didn't really know what was going to happen. And it was exciting. Um, a lot of dread and apprehension more than the stuff that actually happens. I, I think that compared say to the nun, which was just a disaster, mm -hmm. this was at least a, a competent movie and you paid your money and you went in and you saw it and you thought, huh, yeah, that was that was a movie. That was part of this universe. It didn't break any new ground. It didn't do anything particularly exciting or shocking. It, to me, it didn't add to the universe at all. But there's nothing wrong with Annabelle Comes Home. All right. <laughs> There's the box quote. Great. I heard from, uh, well, I heard from like bro-y YouTube critic guys who are into horror movies that this was just a cash in and it was lame and it was bad. But then I heard from like critic types and now from you, pretty much what you said, that it's a competent entry and that it's, it, it does what it says on the box, basically. Uh, that's right. And it, this installment is completely female centered which I don't know, maybe they, uh, maybe these, these bros don't care for that as much. Sure. I'm putting that on them, right. but they open themselves up to that kind of projection. I, I just, I just want to throw that in there. <laughs> You're on blast bros. <laughs> That's it. Well, uh, you may have convinced me to toss my uh, conjuring disc into the player this week sometime. You should totally do it. You won't, you won't regret it. Can I skip? What are the two offshoots the nun and oh la llorona is the other one that's like tangentially in yeah the universe I, I i mean i think that once you're in you'll want to see them all okay. because that's yeah. the kind of person you are but yeah go go for it I, th I i enjoy how these movies they have like one little scene in them that is a reference to another one of the movies mm -hmm. or when you see it later oh that little throwaway scene oh the whole movie is about the two people in that throwaway scene yeah it, it's it's like that gotcha okay great I couldn't quickly tell you what happens in the other Conjuring movies. I couldn't tell you what order they're supposed oh, to be yeah. in. That's not the point. Right. What I've heard is that Conjuring 1 and 2 are interesting and good. The first Annabelle movie was not great, and the second one's really good. Yeah, well, this one's completely acceptable. Great. What did you see? I saw a few things. In the theater, I saw Toy Story 4 again, and it was delightful, oh. still wonderful. Uh, but other than that, I caught up with last year's Mary Queen of Scots on hmm. Blu-ray, actually convinced Shireen, actually it's her idea to watch it with me. And it was an interesting experience. It's pretty good. That's the, that's the bottom it, line review. Was it boring? No, I don't think it was boring. It was interesting. And, but part of what made it interesting was it took a few swings and some of them connected and some did not. I guess I'll praise it first. It is well cast. 
the the actresses Saoirse Ronan and Margot Robbie are really game. You can tell, especially Margot Robbie, that she was up for playing a gross historical person, like the boils and the makeup and everything. It's not a glamorous role at all, and she kind of leans into that. As far as the the history, they kind of simplify it and they kind of streamline it to make it easier to understand, but that's good and bad. Like it was entertaining and interesting and the performances were good, but it was very, it had anachronistic elements and attitudes that seemed really shoehorned in to appeal to a 2018 audience. So for example, both uh, Queens, you know, Elizabeth in England and Mary in Scotland have um, courts just filled with beautiful, diverse people dark-skinned African people, Asian people, and they're their they're most trusted advisors. And you're just thinking, I don't think that's what Elizabeth's court looked like. And there is uh, there are plot elements that deal with the sexuality of Mary's husband and one of the fellows in her court. And the movie goes out of its way to let you know before some really horrible things happen to these characters that Mary was woke. Mary literally takes one of the gay characters aside and grabs him by the shoulders and says, you can be whoever you want to be in my court. So that by the time things go down and then feel historically appropriate, you at least know that she was really bummed out about it. So it just felt very much like a movie of its moment. And that kind of was the only ripple in what I thought otherwise was a pretty uh, watchable three star movie. I kept on thinking I was going to see it last year and I had opportunities and I kept on thinking I was going to see it and I just never did. I think there's just something about it. I couldn't turn the interest wheel. I think in the same year as The Favorite, that's yeah, an easy that choice for me. Shireen, I, I wanted Shireen to watch The Favorite with me and that was kind of her compromise. Like, Can we do this one instead? Look, looks better. Yeah, I'm not sure Shireen would like The Favorite. No, she actually wouldn't. She would like She would enjoy it when it's cute and funny. And then when it starts to get bonkers, I think she would get uncomfortable. Yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of The Favorite. I, I should probably actually rewatch it because I think I was a little disappointed after my own vision of what it was going to be. Mm-hmm. And now I wonder if I'd like it, it might better if I saw it again. Yeah, it might hold up. Uh, and I have one more thing. I saw a theatrical release. Did you see anything else? I did. Go for it. We went to Child's Play. So I thought of asking you earlier if your week was just filled with uh, murderous <laughs> doll movies. And it wasn't on purpose. Those were just the best looking things that happened to be at our Cineplex. Well, Child's Play is a lot better than Annabelle. Okay. I I enjoyed this movie. Do you have any history with that franchise? No. I only only culturally do I am I aware of of that franchise. Um something that I liked about this reboot is that it takes away any uh demonic or supernatural elements. And we live in a land where this technology company gives us Buddy. And I wasn't totally sure what this product is supposed to be because it's, you know, my Buddy doll, but he has Wi-Fi capabilities and he can be connected to any product of the company that makes him. So I'm thinking, well, if someone wanted that, why wouldn't they just want it on their iPad or something to control their TV or their or their Roomba or their oven or whatever it is? Why does it need to be in doll form that walks around? Is it for children like or an, it's for anybody? Well, that's the confusion because it is for children. It's supposed to be like the like an AI best friend for a child, 
except it controls all of the products in the home because in this world, every product in your house is made by this company hmm. that has any sort of wiring. And so he's like a personal assistant and he learns your names and your likes and your dislikes, but he is very carefully created so as to have a very limited personality and limited emotional capacity or, you know, false emotional capacity. Unfortunately, though, there is an employee who gets yelled at and slapped in the Vietnamese warehouse for being worthless. And as soon as you finish this dog, get out of here. And so now upset and disgruntled, he undoes those security measures on the doll that he's working on. And I guess doesn't really program it for evil, but removes all the all the safety mm-hmm. stuff. And so this particular buddy doll is returned to the store for being evil. And Audrey Plaza plays a young single mother who doesn't always have a lot of money to give her kid Andy toys. And so she blackmails her boss into letting her have this returned doll. And the doll wants to be Andy's best friend, which is kind of refreshing. It's not an evil doll. It just doesn't understand the world. So when Andy gets scratched by the cat and, oh, stupid cat, Chucky thinks that he's going to ingratiate Andy to him by harming the cat. And when he sees Andy and his friends laughing at a slasher movie, he thinks, oh, knife violence is funny. And so by threatening them with knives, he's going to make this kid be his best friend. Of course, that's not what happens. and the people who are problems in Andy's life or that the doll feels are a threat to his friendship then become victims of the of the doll's murderous schemes. I found it to be um, inventive and funny throughout. The big climax happens at the Buddy 2 launch at the Walmart or, or Ross-like store. I don't know. It's the saddest possible store where she works. Um, because when you have this evil little doll that can control every electronic in the store, including all the other like buddy dolls, and there's like all variations of buddy too, um, mayhem can ensue, and it does. Wow, sounds entertaining. Yeah, it. it I mean, if you like that kind of thing, it's just stupid. Yeah, I I, I enjoyed it. Well, good. So two doll movies, two Dan recommendations. Tepid they may be. There's not that much out there right now. No. Well, there is yesterday, Dan. Ugh. Is that is that your next one? It is my next one. Okay. You sound as excited to hear about it as I am <laughs> to talk about it. Two two very strange uh, bedfellows, Danny Boyle and Richard Curtis, have made a movie together with a dumb premise that could have at least been fluffy and breezy and fun. Global blackout, one struggling, unsuccessful singer-songwriter wakes up He's the only person on earth who remembers the Beatles and the music of the Beatles. He's now in a world where not that they never existed as people, but they never got together and made that music. And he believes he is the only person who remembers it. And he begins to forge a career for himself by claiming to have written the songs of the Beatles. And that sounds like that would be enough for a story, but it's kind of a diversion or a misdirection for the real story, which is an extremely bland love story between this main character played by Himesh Patel and his manager slash best friend played by Lily James, 
who is secretly pining for him and always has been, and he might be in love with her. You know how we complain frequently in movies that if two characters could just have an honest conversation, it would save so much time and unpleasantness. And that's this entire screenplay. Uh, the, the business with the music, they just posit that the Beatles songs out of order, haphazard in any context will just be the most beautiful music anybody's ever heard. And they'll be mesmerized. Forget about cultural context. Forget about who the Beatles were, what time it was in Britain and America when these things happen. It doesn't matter. You just sing back in the USSR and people will cry. So the guy, you'd think there would be an arc with his character of being kind of into it and rebellious and rock star, but then starting to feel guilty. No, it's just that he's such a nice, bland guy. He kind of feels bad about it from the beginning. He's always looking over his shoulder. He never really gets into it. And then when the movie finally brings everything to a head, I won't spoil what happens, but it wants its cake and eat it too. The way it resolves is baffling. Given my low expectations for the movie, and I was prepared to enjoy it with those very low expectations, it underwhelmed me. So here's here's a question I have. In the, So there's a blackout, and everyone just wakes up having forgotten the Beatles ever existed, but they did exist? Well, that's the weird thing. And, they, and the movie, by the way, explains nothing. We never get an explanation for what happened. So somehow, history has been corrected to the point where if you Google the Beatles, there's a lot of jokes about Googling what is still around. And there's, you know, for example, here's a funny joke. He Googles the Beatles and the, the bug comes up. He says, what about other bands? He Googles the Rolling Stones. They exist. Their music exists. He Googles Oasis. They don't exist because the Beatles don't exist. Ha ha ha. So it's that kind of thing where for some weird reason, because magic, because screenplay, he has it in his memory. Like the records disappear. There's no sheet music. He has to remember every Beatles song. And then suddenly he's orchestrated them to brilliant perfection. But there's a running joke that he can't remember the words to Eleanor Rigby because nobody can remember the words to Eleanor Rigby. Yeah, it's pure like magical, no explanation offered. Because I could see there being some sort of dramatic impact if there's been some sort of a public brainwashing, but deep down the memory is still there. And so if somehow someone hears a song that meant a lot to them, even though they don't understand what it is and they think that they're hearing it for the first time, that it would like hit an emotional chord for them for some reason. I would yeah. like, I would like that to happen in the movie. Yeah, uh, definitely. That's not what's going on because there are actually, and this is a mild spoiler, skip 30 seconds. If you don't want to hear a spoiler, there are two characters who are like that. There are two people who discover slowly through hearing the music that they do remember, but there's no indication that this would happen to everybody given time. It is a world without the Beatles. Also randomly, Coke disappears in this blackout, cigarettes, certain cultural touchstones, these these cultural things, iconic things don't exist for, for whatever reason. And we don't get any indication of what is going on and why. So Coke disappears? Yeah, it never existed. Why? But Pepsi does. What is this conspiracy? I want to know more. I want to know more about that. Yeah. It's very frustrating that they don't even play with it in like a sci-fi kind of way. It's just it's there to get the story going so this guy can become a superstar. Yeah, that would never happen. It's very strange how this kind of singer songwritery thing is just embraced by the globe in 2019. You know, in a world with Cardi B and Taylor Swift and whatever, suddenly the most popular performer is a guy with a guitar singing uh you know hey jude yeah that sounds frustrating i'm probably not going to see that one yeah yeah I'd, I'd skip it all right dan let's take a break and when we come back we'll talk about the big sleep let's do it 
Welcome back. Josh and Dan are here. This week's film is my selection, so here I go. Uh, the Big Sleep is a 1946 noir film directed by Howard Hawks and starring Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall at the height of their powers and based on the novel by Raymond Chandler. It is a twisty, turny crime story about a private detective who takes a job from a wealthy, retired man, a general, to protect his reckless daughter, Carmen, played by Martha Vickers, from some unsavory entanglements. And he, Marlowe, Philip Marlowe is the name of the detective, and he soon finds himself in a world of danger and flirtatious conflict with Carmen's older sister, Vivian, played by Bacall. And the story has pornographers posing as bookshop owners, a gambling den, hired goons, lots of fast talk and gunplay. This is a movie that is hard to follow, but I would say I would argue easy to watch if you embrace it in a certain way. I enjoyed it from the first time I saw it. It was one of the first real noir movies that I saw. We kind of grew up, Dan, in the 80s and 90s when uh, noir had kind of just become a um, dressing, like a, a reference, a, a costume to be put on, and plot and story didn't really matter. It was just kind of like Venetian blinds and dames and detectives, and it became all kind of empty and silly. I would say that this is more of an authentic noir based on this noir novel that was contemporary at the time. And it's all about dense plotting and characters caught up over their heads in, in intrigue and danger. And I think there's two ways to enjoy and embrace this movie and there's crossover. They're not mutually exclusive, but some people enjoy this as a kind of pure dose of serious classic noir and they enjoy the plotting and the dialogue and the, the filmmaking. Others just want to see an old movie with Bogey and Bacall. And this is, you know, from that run of early movies. This is her third appearance, her second with Bogey. He was already a, a uh, journeyman by this point. Yeah, some people just like this in a TCM, look at these stars, watch an old movie kind of a way. And other people get very into it as a noir movie. I liked it enough that I read the novel. And it is actually pretty true to the novel, except that you would never get the image of Humphrey Bogart reading the novel. The ins and outs of the story are mostly the same, but uh, the character sounds a little more like a Irish, uh, handsome, younger guy. Uh, anyway, that I'll, I have more to say about the way the movie plays and the way it holds up. But Dan, what is your history and experience with The Big Sleep? My history and experience is that last night I watched it. I had not seen it before. I was aware that there was a movie titled that, but I didn't really know anything about it. So I was glad to sit down and watch it. About midway, I realized that though I was watching closely, I had no idea what was happening. And so I opened up Wikipedia for the plot to read as far as I had watched and that didn't help me too much because there are so many characters. Yeah. They just keep coming. And I, I I was lacking a golden thread. And it's not that I wasn't enjoying watching it. Like you say, the experience is, is as good as anything. But there was, wasn't to me a golden thread of something that they're trying to do. And they make efforts toward that A, B, C, D down the line. 
trying to find their way to a conclusion. It seems like, okay, we're going to try to do this, but then that brings us to this place. And now here's a new three people that we meet and this is now going on. So now we follow this and I, I got lost in the plot Yeah, on my, on my viewing last night. Mm -hmm. I've seen it enough times that I've penetrated the plot as much as I'm going to. Although I should say, I still, I've seen it probably eight times total since uh, I was in my twenties till now. And I never remember what happens. I never remember. I'm always saying, oh yeah, that guy. Oh yeah, this, which is kind of fun. If you enjoy watching the movie that you're going to, I don't remember that it ends 10 miles outside of Rialto or whatever by this little uh, auto body shop in this house. I, that's always a surprise to me. But um, here's something fun, and I don't know if maybe this is something that's just so in the culture that you know this, and I don't need to get into it, but uh, I, I didn't realize this for many years. Are you aware of the connection between this and a specific Coen Brothers movie? Uh, I'm not. Uh, well, it's a movie that shares two of the words of this film's title. The Big Lebowski is actually a kind of a goof on Raymond Chandler detective novels and a, and a lot of the elements from this book in particular. So you have the wheelchair bound, wealthy old timer, you know, Lebowski or General Sternwood. He has a daughter who is young and reckless and caught up in some kind of unsavory stuff like Carmen or like Bunny Lebowski. You have the older sister who is a little more mature and gets uh, tied up with the main character. And that would be Maud or Bacall. And there's also like the other gumshoe that he runs into late in the plot. There's the butler and then there's Brant. It's like the Coen brothers said, let's take the density and the twists and turns and intrigue of a Chandler novel. But instead of putting a detective in the middle of it all, let's just put this moronic stoner in there and, and just see what happens. I have something to tell you. What's that? You haven't I've seen never, the Big Lebowski? I've never seen the Big Lebowski. You've never seen the Big Lebowski? <laughs> no. Get off of my podcast. <laughs> All right. So wow. I have other things to say. All right. Say them. <laughs> All right. So I, I think of a movie like LA Confidential and I think of labyrinthine plot and maybe it took me a couple watches and it came together for me and there's, there's a center there. I think of Vertigo. And there's a center in the plot, even though it's crazy. Um, there were uh, flashes of Sunset Boulevard in this for me. I didn't understand why every character seemed so dead set on not revealing crucial information on to people who were trying to help them. I didn't get that. Why even the people who were in need of help also were sort of part of their own conspiracy. Because mm -hmm. I wanted Vivian to be a little more upfront with Marlowe. Yeah. I was... Uh, incredulous at the idea that he was 38. Mm -hmm. Impossible. Right. So I looked it up. He was like 47 or something like that. Right, right. And she, like, is that to make the relationship with a 22-year-old be a little more palatable? I mean, they were married in real life. Yeah. I don't know. It's crazy to me what 22 was back then. Right. Side right. note. Yeah. Because it sure seemed so mature. And I understand that Bacall had had some bad reviews on her last film. And that uh, Martha Vickers kind of stole the show here and they demanded it be recut and lost a lot of Carmen's scenes, which also made the plot more difficult to follow. Yes. That made sense to me to read that as I was watching it. Right. Yeah, I have notes about that stuff too. 
so two two reasons that this movie was actually shot in 45 but released in 46 the first just being that world war ii was coming to a close and the studio paused everything that wasn't war related and rushed out all the war content to get it out in time but during that time she appeared in in just two movies one of them was not key largo to have and have not was her first movie with and their first movie with bogart and everybody loved her she was in a second film, the title of which escapes me, and she got really bad notices. So they freaked out and also the stuff about Martha Vickers. And they went back and they reshot large swaths of this movie. And they have some of those alternate scenes on this DVD that I have. It's impossible to see Lauren Bacall and not think she's amazing. But I guess what they saw was that she was playing it a little more diminutive and quiet and and not being sassy to Humphrey Bogart, which is what works so well in the other film. So they reshot everything to basically to get that dynamic back between them they were not married when they shot this movie they were married by the time they reshot all of her scenes i see i didn't get what was going on with carmen in the first scene was that considered in any way an appropriate way to engage a stranger in your home she tried to sit on my lap while i was standing up what what was that what was that meeting to me that wasn't like comedic it wasn't like filmy it was just like right. what is going on but maybe not in 1946 i wonder if you know you're asking about characters motivations and some of these things that play so weird and why would yeah and i don't know i agree with you i wonder if some of it's because everybody kind of especially to our eyes now everybody kind of is in a suit if it's a man and you know everybody's kind of just dressed straight and everybody's just kind of behaving themselves you have to kind of infer who's seedy. I just wonder if you could make the characters a little more honest and authentic if you would understand motivations better instead of just a bunch of people who are really, really polite. Yeah, they're not helped as far as understanding who's who with the mid-century, mid-Atlantic inflection and, you know, the fast talking and nobody's really speaking the way that I'm used to hearing people speak. I totally have white guy face blindness it's heightened in Mm -hmm. this era when -hmm. it's black and white and like you say everyone's in a suit and basically has their hair the same way i i don't know who i'm looking at moment to moment in this movie and don't get me wrong like i'm saying the things that were barriers for me it's not like i watched this and didn't enjoy it i I feel like in order for it to become a beloved movie i need to see it about 10 more times and i'm just trying to put together something that the pieces of which are are quite disparate to me on a first viewing. Yeah. No, I get that. I feel that. I also wish that I didn't tell you all that stuff about The Big Lebowski, but that's for, I guess that's another conversation. I wasn't listening that closely (laughs) because I was just waiting for the next thing that I had to say, which was to tell you that I hadn't watched The Big Lebowski. (laughs) Craziness. All right. Um, One thing that I want to put in this movie's column is that Philip Marlowe, for the character as written, I like the fact that Philip Marlowe is a detective and does detective stuff. Meaning, as I was saying earlier, I think noir became just this kind of set dressing style and people would do skits and kids shows would do a noir episode or whatever it is. And it it would just be empty dressing. I like the fact that he actually, as weird as it is, the stuff he does is weird and the plot is incredibly strange, but he goes to the library and researches so that he can go to the bookstore and feel it out and see if they're really legitimate or not. He knows how to like case a crime scene and all these things that he has to do. He knows how to uh, get people to admit things or turn conversations around. 
uh, I at least appreciate that aspect of this as a detective story, which I think is something that got gets very quickly glossed out of lesser detective stories. Yeah, I mean, I see the building blocks of cliche here before it was cliche. Like you say, the stuff that we easily recognize as a genre that can be parodied or satirized in later stuff. This was, I don't know, not the first time it was ever done, but this is what they're satirizing. This is what the send-up is of. And so limited value in that. I guess you have to be interested in noir itself. If you want to, you know, there's a handful of titles. If you search on Google for best noir movies, this will be in the top four or five with uh, Maltese Falcon and to have and have not and movies like that. Double indemnity, which you mentioned earlier. Um, So I think moving to the question of how this holds up, whether or not it is enjoyed on a subjective basis will have to do with one's appetite for this kind of thing. If you're interested in this kind of thing, if you want to go see early pure bogey Bacall, or if you want to go see uh, pure uncut noir, highly recommended. I would even say don't worry about following it to the letter uh, the first time you watch it. Just kind of feel it and go with it and see where it takes you. And if you enjoy the experience, you can go back to the well. And on a more general level, I want to say that movies like this, the hold, I was taking the holds up question to this movie and just thinking in general, well, it's really, I mean, there's some really specific things, of course, that don't hold up about classic Hollywood movies, but in general, they manage to be way more timeless and hold up much better than movies from t- uh, 10 years ago, four, 15 years ago, like we saw last week, where these are movies that have been considered classic in every decade since they came out. And they still hold up that way. There are some archaic attitudes toward women on display in this movie. And I'm sure if we could parse all of the jargon, we might be horrified by some of it and where it comes from. But in general, uh, I don't know. There's something about it just on the surface of the way that it's presented and acted and filmed that I feel like it almost has a leg up on the on the holds up question where uh, it's going to have an advantage in that way. Does that make any sense? Do you feel that way about old movies? Yeah, I mean, that they're still around and we're still thinking about them this long. That it's a property that I would have heard of culturally means there's something about it that's of value, whereas we forget so many things. I look back even on Letterboxd from, you know, by year, and I think, I think I went to that, huh? You know, and you wouldn't think that about this movie. I'll remember certainly that I watched it. Mm-hmm. I, I Something I think that is interesting when I go back and see older movies is that these movies don't know yet what the rules will be for movies. Hmm. And I was feeling like this movie, this film was breaking a lot of rules as to the economy of characters rule (laughs) (laughs) where you're introduced to someone and they sure seem like they're going to be important. And then they're just gone. Yeah. Like, like the woman at the bookstore across the street, I thought, Oh, maybe this is the next build supporting character. (laughs) Right, right. Because she's going to kind of help him sleuth. Right. And she has an interest in him. Yeah, no. Right. And that uh, is a famous scene for its, what at the time is considered raw sexuality, <laughs> that he hits on her and she responds and she, the whole, can you lose the glasses thing, which is kind of a groaner today. But um, that's, uh, people talk about that scene and its power, but yes, yeah, as a character, she does nothing and then disappears. Yeah, I guess there were a couple of gay characters too, but they didn't get to be. Yeah. Um, it's been a while since I read the book, but I believe you're right. I'm looking it up here. 
There are also scenes in the DA's office, a bunch of characters there, and, and a lot of discussions that were pure exposition that would have been helpful, but were not really intense enough. Yeah, Geiger and Lundgren were a couple. Oh, okay. I don't remember who either of those people are. So Geiger is the owner of the antiquated bookstore who is killed. He's also the guy who's taking pictures of Carmen with her clothes off. So I guess if you're a gay character, you're also a pornographer. In Also, also yeah. a pornographer. Yeah. Who's Lundgren? Might have been his like manservant, his lackey. I don't know. Huh. Maybe if I watch it again, I'll, I'll watch for those names. And Carmen coming to his apartment was supposedly scandalous at the time because in the book, she was supposed to be found in his bed when he gets home. Oh, yeah. Before he kicks her out. But instead, she's in a gown or something. Right, right. In his sitting room. Yeah, it's crazy how they have to play things. Everybody's sitting up and fully dressed, and they have to then layer deeper things into the the subtext of the dialogue. Ebert, when he was looking at the 1945 cut, whenever that was finally released, thought that it made a lot more sense Mm plot-wise, but that it lost so much noir-wise. Yeah. And of course, gives it four stars as a great movie. One of his great movies, yeah. I don't know initially if this movie may have started out for me as like a um, merit badge. Like, oh, people say this is a great and important movie and impenetrable. Well, I'm going to watch it and sit through it. And then I'm going to like put it in my little pantheon of movies. But over the years, I came to genuinely, especially when I had my bogey and Bacall period. And then when she passed away a few years back, you know, revisiting these movies uh, just to enjoy the performances. I, this one really does stand out as uh, being enjoyable to me every time I've watched it. What's how we get into things? Some looks like how I got into the Bible <laughs> you get, <laughs> to impress other people. <laughs> you got to do it, and you got to see it this right. way. And it's, you know, it's really important. And so I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. But I was like, oh, kind of left a lot of that behind. I but, had to, oh, yeah. there's, there's some good stuff there. Right. I had to go get a master's degree with honors and distinction before I was ready right. to chill out. Right. That's all it takes. Yeah. Feeds the machine. Right. Well, Dan, any more uh, thoughts on the big sleep? I always bring it back to the Bible. You, you sure do. Um, you keep us on the, the straight and narrow, Dan. I really appreciate that. Nothing straight about it. <laughs> Here's the thing also I wanted to mention about the script of the of the 46, uh, 45, 46, big sleep. Female screenwriter. Oh. Not primarily. William Faulkner wrote the script, but uh, Howard Hawks read a novel by the writer Lee Brackett. And he hired her to work with Faulkner to do the final version of the screenplay. And she went on to write a couple other notable things known for The Empire Strikes Back, a little movie called The Empire Strikes Back, Rio Bravo, Hatari. You know, still rare today to point out that a, a, a woman wrote the screenplay for a major movie, all the yeah. more so in 1945. Well, I remember that Betty Schaefer wrote a screenplay in Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. So therefore, That's right. women were everywhere. Right. <laughs> also, Christopher Marlowe is an English playwright. Oh, yeah. And poet. Yeah. And that's different. Didn't he really write all of Shakespeare's from, plays? Exactly. And that's different from Philip Marlowe. All right, Dan. Uh, we have been Dan and Josh. This has been our podcast. You can follow us both on Letterboxd and Twitter. The show is at Holds Up Pod on Twitter. Our music is by Jonah Rapino. This has been Holds Up, and we will check you out next time. Thanks, everybody. Good night, Dan. Nighty.
Uh, how's it going? I'm doing okay. All right. I'm uh, okay. I, I'm in weird health today. I feel like I don't have equilibrium or strength, Uh-oh. but I'm okay. Well, then the labyrinthine noir plot of today's <laughs> feature is not what you need. <laughs> Let me tell you, I was a little confused by the plot, and I longed for a film I could follow a little better, so I turned on Mulholland Drive after. Okay. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Shots fired. Uh, (laughs) I can't wait to talk about this one. Yes. Okay, good.